the design work that we produce in our office. You know, it's a lot like the design studios where there's a high level of inefficiency in the process. You stumble upon all kinds of details and directions, and if it's a direction that you think is wise, then you follow it. Hi, and welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today we have Mark Womble from Architectural Safety Components. Mark Womble, along with his partner in practice, Don Finley, founded the Houston-based firm Interloop Architecture in 2001. Working on the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas planted the seeds that would lead to the founding of Architectural Safety Components, which thoughtfully designs life safety fixtures for a range of buildings. Outside of his work with ASC and Interloop, Mark is professor in the practice at Rice School of Architecture. We are excited to talk with Mark about ASC and working outside of the traditional architectural context. Let's dive in. Mark, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for inviting me. As part of Interloop Architecture's work as associate architect on the Renzo Piano Design Nasher Sculpture Center, you designed and fabricated a custom exit sign for the galleries in 2002. Can you tell us the story behind this first exit sign? Uh, sure. So in, in 2001, uh, my partner, Don Finley, that's my partner in Interloop Architecture, um, we were both teaching at Rice and we were working in separate offices. Don was working for HOK as a designer and I was working um, as a partner with Will Kennedy at Bricker and Kennedy Architects. And we decided in 2001 that we wanted to split off and form our own office. We had been doing projects prior to that. We'd written articles together and we had exhibited at other museums around the country. And we had a handful of small projects, but we felt like it was a good time to make our move and to start Interlube Architecture. So in 2001, we resigned from our respective offices and we incorporated Interlube Architecture. And we were having lunch with a former student from the School of Architecture at Rice, Brett Turpilek. And he was one of the designers for Renzo Piano's office. Um, we were here in Houston and he was in Texas, and he'd, he'd come down to Houston just for a couple of days while he was uh, working on the Nasher. We were just in, you know, enjoying lunch, and at some point he said, we're looking for someone who can help us administer the design for the Nasher Sculpture Center. They were just excavating the site at this point. They, they hadn't really started any construction, and there was a lot of work left to do on the construction documents. So Don and I just thought, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll think about that and see if we can recommend someone. So we. We finished lunch, and at, at some point, Brett went outside to make a phone call or something, and Don and I just looked at each other and thought, you know, we have no work. We need that job. So Brett came back in, and we, we told him that we might be interested in interviewing for the job, and he said, great. And so the Nasher Foundation flew us up to Dallas. We met with Renzo, and we met with the design partner, Mushi Baglietto, and met with Ray Nasher and his person in charge of the project, a guy named Bill Hawes, and they thought we were perfect for the job, and so we started working right away. Originally, we were hired by Renzo Piano's office, so it was Don and I, and we had one part-time employee. Our responsibility was to administer the design. We, we traveled every week for three years. I think I made 180 flights back and forth to Dallas to administer the design. And so the, the initial responsibility was to take the design drawings and to finish a lot of the design drawings as we were working on construction. 
and to ensure that things were being implemented in the way that uh, Renzo's office expected them to be implemented. And if there was a conflict, we were asked to resolve it uh, on site if we felt like we could. And if we, we didn't feel comfortable making certain decisions, we would contact Renzo's office in Genoa and, and we would get a resolution quickly. And over the first few months on the job site, the Nasher Foundation became very comfortable with us. And so we extended our contract with Renzo's office, and then they extended our contract separately. So we were asked to do everything from coordinating the design between the, the landscape architect, which was Peter Walker Associates, and Renzo's office. We were asked to design the auditorium downstairs. We were asked to design all the miscellaneous metalwork, um, all the loose furniture, the bookstore, the cafe. And eventually, we were asked to help them implement all the signage on the project. Anytime you're working with uh, an emergency exit sign or any kind of life safety product, you have to go through underwriter laboratories for approval. We'd been doing the, the sky space for James Terrell also, which was something that we were hired directly by the National Foundation to do. And we were using LED technology for, um, for the sky spaces pending blue. Terrell wanted us to use a fairly advanced kind of LED technology in conjunction with what he always uses, which is cold cathode lighting. So uh, we became very familiar with LED technology, who manufactures it, what its capabilities are, what its light source is like, what the power sources are, how you wire everything, you know, technically, which is really what we had to do on every aspect of that job. We were always asked to figure things out technically and make sure that it could be implemented. We manufactured 45 exit signs on our dining room table in our house because we really couldn't find anyone else that could do it. And we had them installed in 2003. And I think that the takeaway for us, there were many takeaways of that, but one of them was that if you understand what the design constraints are, and if you have a good grasp of the, the technical aspects, there's um, a lot that, that you can do. But you also have to work through underwriter laboratories, which is quite strict in their design guidelines. And if you can do that, I guess you can pretty much you know, design uh, any exit sign. So the Nasher light is a one-off object for a very specific context. And this is inherently different than creating a product that's intended to be available to a wider audience. How did you take the technical knowledge that you learned in designing the Nasher exit sign and then develop it into what eventually became architectural safety components? That's a good question because for the Nasher, like everything that we produced on that, that project, just about everything, it was custom um, and it was one-off. And the same was true for the exit signs. And so in the, in the case of the Nasher, we did uh, seek and, and receive UL approval for the design. It was, it was designed for one-off application and it was based upon how visible and how recognizable the sign was in that context. It was largely a light-colored um, EXIT, the legend, what they call the legend, was a, a light color with a very faint green line kind of floating in the white lenses. It maintained enough contrast with the stone and the other materials that were in the museum so that the UL inspectors deemed it acceptable in that one application. But if it was to be used in another building, there was really no guarantee that it would be legible. So UL wouldn't let the Nasher Foundation, or anyone else for that matter, use that design elsewhere. After the, the signs were installed, the Nasher opened, 
and there was a, a huge gathering of artists and collectors and curators and architects that came to the opening. There were hundreds of people that walked through the, the museum that first day. And we were quite close to the director, Steve Nash, and at the end of the day, he came up to me and he said, you know, the Nashers own about a half a billion dollars worth of almost priceless sculpture, but throughout the day, people would look around the room and then they would look up the exit sign and they would point to it and they would say, where did you get that exit sign? And he was saying it kind of laughing because it was slightly absurd. And I think just as a result of it being such a high profile building with many visitors, other architects pursued the same exit sign and would come to us because the Nash had directed them to us and they said, please, would you let us use that exit sign in our building? We had uh, Sana, we had Norman Foster, we had uh, Stephen Hole, we had you know all these kind of high profile architects inquiring about the exit sign, but we had to turn them down because it was really not our intellectual property. We couldn't use it, we couldn't reproduce it, and we didn't feel like it was appropriate to even entertain the idea. This was from 2003 till 2009. And if you recall, in 2009, the financial market collapsed. Uh, our office was going full steam. We had multiple employees. We had a lot going on. And then a lot of the projects that we were working on either had their budget slashed in half or they just folded altogether. So we were confronted with the possibility of laying everyone off and not knowing what we were going to do. We had some people in the office who were continuing to work on projects that were being built at the time but they weren't fully utilized, so we decided at that point to pursue another exit sign design. So as we were pursuing the design uh, of the new exit sign, we were also trying to figure out how we would put together a company that was based upon manufacturing and the sale of product, as opposed to a company like Interloop Architecture that was based upon delivering design solutions uh, for buildings primarily. How many iterations of the sign did you go through before you landed on one that you were able to manufacture and continually produce? We probably went through a couple different prototypes that had slightly different configurations for how the sign was mounted or how the letters were detailed um, with lenses that snapped onto what we call a backplate. And thinking about the form of the sign relative to the different manufacturing techniques that we had access to. I would say that we went through two or three, but they weren't that different from one another. When we first produced prototypes, we submitted them to the Patent and Trade Office. And we have three design patents and two utility patents and several trademarks and copyrights for our product. In the process of doing that, we got feedback from the Patent and Trade Office, and they immediately looked at the Nasher and said, no, your sign is significantly different from this sign, even though at first glance it has similarities. It was significantly different from a design point of view, as well as from a technical point of view, which has to do with the way that light passes from the LED inside the sign to the lens at the face of the sign. We made sure that there was something that we could manufacture, uh, even in a remotely affordable way. And that was probably the most difficult, but the most innovative aspect of the design, which was due, I think, to the fact that we got pushback from UL, got pushback from the Patent and Trade Office, and got pushback from our local manufacturers so that we could refine it and make it better. And there are two versions of the sign. Are they different purely in a material way, one of them is molded plastic and the other is milled aluminum? Or are there other differences that we wouldn't be able to register maybe? Right, so 
in, as far as the electronics are concerned, they are the same. The electronics have evolved quite a bit since we first started manufacturing the sign. We've been able to reduce the amount of energy consumption to about four watts. Energy Star ratings require you to get them to five watts and we get it to four watts so anyone who's, and many of our customers are concerned about green technology and it being, us being responsible with energy consumption. So it evolved in that fashion to the benefit of the customers that buy our sign. But as far as the two signs are concerned, Lilu, which is what we call the milled aluminum sign, uses a slightly different configuration where the sign can be mounted with a very small round discussion in the wall, so it's super minimal in terms of its aesthetic. And the power supply can be mounted up to 20 feet away, so you can put the power supply up in the ceiling, or you can put it in the floor in a return air vent, or you can put it around the corner in an electrical closet or somewhere out of sight which I think a lot of our customers appreciate, especially in high-profile lobby spaces or, or high-traffic areas of buildings. So the finishes are a little bit nicer. The detail for how it's mounted is a little bit nicer, but everything else about the electronics are the same. There's two colors, red and green. That's all the same for both Lilu as well as Ellis, which is the injection molded sign. The difference with Ellis is that we really wanted to find a way for customers to be able to specify a sign like our design, but also include them in the back of house areas. Ellis costs about half the price of, of Lilu, and it's modular. A lot of the parts snap together so we can configure different um, mounting details as well as different face configurations with a chevron to the right or the left or two chevrons or no chevrons, all by just snapping different parts in and out. So the injection molded part is meant to be one where it's simple to put it together. It's easy to stock large quantities of parts fairly quick to put together and ship. You know, we wanted it to be a lot more of a kind of a consumer product than Lilu, which is a made to order and much more custom. Okay, and so you touched on affordability and sustainability a little bit with those signs. Do you see ASC having any plans in the future for other signs that might meet that affordability idea or sustainability while still having high quality and aesthetics in the design? We've talked about several other options. And really from the very beginning, we wanted to not only address exit signs, but we wanted to address all the life safety fixtures in a building. So whether that was strobes or alarms or pull stations or any of the other components that are required by the fire marshal and are just part of the overall life safety package, but are generally considered unattractive um, when you see them on the wall or in the building. So that was something that we, and it still is something that we're very interested in doing, but right now, because so much of our expertise is in the production of exit signs, uh, knowing everything about the UL design standards, knowing everything about luminance and how they're tested and how they have to perform, it makes a lot of sense for us to come up with other designs or for us to implement other designs. We have probably two other designs you know, in folders sitting somewhere in our office, and if we decide that the time is right for doing that, we'll implement those. I think the criteria will be that it's simpler and quicker to manufacture because Lilu being made to order, there are over 600 variations to Lilu. So if you go to our website, you can build and quote any number of different configurations. And when you start to add them up, you realize that it's just a massive set of possibilities for how you configure the exit signs for your project. So for example, we just shipped 95 signs to the Academy of Motion Pictures in LA uh, over the summer. And roughly 80 to 85 of them were custom, either with slightly different shades of white or slightly different shades of black or slightly different mounting details. So 
when you produce signs like that, um, and we had over 30 customers that we shipped signs to just this last summer, every one of them requires a high level of hands-on sort of managing of the process. And we're very careful about how we put things together, and every exit sign has to be inspected by a UL inspector. So there's a lot that goes into the way that the signs are ordered, assembled, and shipped and installed with Lilu. We would re we'd really like to have something that would also be a lot simpler for people who just want a, a nicer level of design for those pieces of emergency equipment. In sourcing the materials for ASC, pretty much everything is from Houston or around Texas, with the exception of some plastic coming from Minnesota. You also check all the fabrication and assembly at each step in the process. What's the driving force behind working this way? Yeah, so for us, part of it was just being able to control the quality. We wanted to make it locally so that if we needed to change the process, we would know what the criteria were for changing the process. Quite often when you do business at a distance, any simple change that you ask for ends up being this huge upcharge in the price. When someone's local, we have a very personal relationship with them. We go and we see the products being made. We work with them to figure out ways of saving money that's good for them and uh, saving money for us, but maintaining quality. Um, it just makes a lot more sense. So I feel like that's really important to the, to the, the, the design and to the, the production of the, the product and just the organization of the company. Did you find that people were critical of that strategy? Did anyone tell you it wasn't possible or it was financially unfeasible? There were. Initially, when we started the company, we, we thought, okay, well, when we were getting close to manufacturing, we thought that we needed to follow the model that most other designers and manufacturers follow, which is to hire a lighting agent in every major city. And so we interviewed lighting agents in you know, every city of any size in the country. And we showed them the, the sign, we brought them to the website, we would speak with them over the phone. And some of them, their first response was, you need to get this price way down. Because they're thinking of it as a commodity, and they're not realizing that it's a made-to-order sign. So some of the initial pushback came from the lighting agent, but having filled literally hundreds of orders and shipped many hundreds of signs uh, up to this point, we've only received pushback on price from two customers. So in other words, the customers look at the price and they go, okay, this is an exit sign that's gonna go in the lobby of my building. I just spent $15,000 on the front doors. I just spent a million and a half dollars on the millwork. I just spent literally $5,000 on the hinges. Why am I balking at the price on this exit sign, which is a drop in the bucket compared to any of those things? And oh, by the way, it has to be the most visible sign in the building by law, practically. And it's something that I have to have uh, in order to get my certificate of occupancy from the fire marshal. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense to do this. And so, um, we soon realized that lighting agents, they were not seeing the full picture in the way that we were seeing the full picture. So you talked a little bit about how you would maybe want to branch into other life safety fixtures just because they are objects that people tend not to think of as designed. So how has designing such a ubiquitous object made you think differently about design? I think it would be interesting to compare the design process of uh, a life safety fixture that's intended for mass production with a building or something that you would normally find in an architect's office like we find in interloop architecture. 
And I think you can probably very quickly differentiate between the way that you lay out the problem for a life safety fixture and the way that you lay out the problem for a building designer or a space, the design of a space. Because with life safety fixtures and those sorts of things, there are all these criteria that are very clearly spelled out. And you deal with service bureaus that are reviewing that in a very close fashion. And so it's impossible really to ignore the fact that at some point someone's going to scrutinize every detail of that product, and rightfully so if it's a life safety fixture such as the Exosign. Whereas with the design work that we produce in our office, you know, it's a lot like the design studios that you're involved with, where there's a high level of inefficiency in the process, but it's for a good reason. You stumble upon all kinds of details and directions and other possibilities that sometimes lead you in a completely new direction. And if it's a direction that you think is wise and that your customer or your clients think are wise, then you follow it. With the design of a product, there's quite a specific set of guidelines and you have to stay within you know, the, the lines on the floor. And if you vary from that, it's quite often to your peril. But having said that, with Lilu, we were able to push the boundaries with UL and get them to approve something that they'd never seen before. That was a great answer. I just wanted to ask a little bit of advice that you might give to students who might be interested in pursuing interests outside the traditional scope of architectural practice. As your career has shown, you've done architecture and now exit signs. And they both involve a lot of obviously working to constraints and guidelines and having to think on your feet and problem solve. So I think some of our students and listeners would like to know if you have any advice about going through that process. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, you know, we pride ourselves, and I think it's one of the conversations that comes up periodically at the School of Architecture here, we pride ourselves on being generalists. And I think that that serves us well. I think that what we find out over and over again at the school is when you're given a problem in your design studios or in, in any of your seminars that there's just kind of the expectation that you're going to produce some research to figure out the best way to solve. I mean, part of it is just due to talent and developing your intuition as a designer and allowing different challenges to refine that intuition and to make that talent more robust. But I think that as generalists, we're used to the idea of taking on different types of design problems, researching it, looking at it with a very wide lens, and then narrowing it down to specific solutions. And so that's something that serves you well with product design as well as with building design. I think that for us, what happened with the exit sign and and even what happened with just the Nasher, Both of those are examples of someone coming up to us and and throwing an idea at us that was not what we were really expecting. We weren't really, at the time that we were asked to work on the Nasher, we weren't really interested in being hired as technical architects. We knew that we had to be able to make good use of our technical training, and every architect does. But at that time, we didn't really see ourselves as a technical support architect. And what turned into um, a whole series of small design projects at first just seemed like we were being hired because we had technical expertise. We took the job for, I think, very good reasons. One, of course, was that we had a new office and we had no work. But the other was that there was an interesting client, someone that has uh, a long and rich history in Dallas, which is the Nasher family. We were asked to work with Renzo Piano's office. So, you know, we would travel to Genoa and spend time in their office and then spend time with them when they traveled to Dallas. So it was interesting because the architects and the design team were also interesting and working with other quality designers is 
is always a, a great experience. And of course, then when the economy forced us to think differently about the way that we spent our time and what we did with our staff, it was an opportunity that we recognized and decided that we would take a chance on it. So I think that what I would hope maybe one of the takeaways would be for students is the idea that even though the opportunity may not fit the profile of the opportunities you were looking for originally, that I, I think that if they do fit some of the criteria that you're interested in, it's worth the experiment because that experiment will yield experiences that are useful and applicable in many ways that you can't originally anticipate. If the criteria includes working with interesting people or on projects that will expand your repertoire, then I think that that's certainly a thing to give strong consideration to. I think that it's okay as a student to have the ideal kind of practice in mind. And I think you have to hold on to that and use it as a benchmark. But I think uh, at the same time, so many of the opportunities that we've had at Interloop as well as at Architectural Safety Components have come from people just sort of throwing ideas at us and saying, is this something you can help us with? And generally, we're able to do that because our experience allows it. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing is always remembering that you need to be open to having those experiences and remembering that it all can be part of the larger plan if you have that kind of ideal path that you mentioned. Yeah, and one of the things that I think that has been true for many of the people who have come to work for us is that we have always encouraged them to have their own projects. And, and those projects usually come along with interests that are ones that they generated that, that have come through their experience with architecture. But I think that those projects are things that you can maintain from office to office. In other words, if you have a specific interest, whether it's in graphic design or whether it's in exploring new materials or um, thinking about program or anything that you're particularly passionate about, if you have a way to explore it and to experiment with it while you're in those offices and perhaps even offer some of that research and some of those interests to those offices along the way, those interests continue to build and they become personal projects that you're passionate about. And as you go from office to office, which I think a lot of young architects do and probably should, those projects follow you. And if you're good about curating them and tending to them and naming them, and perhaps from time to time writing something about them or having the opportunity to exhibit them, those really become your intellectual property. So I, I think that for me, the most important thing about having those projects and following along is just knowing that you'll move from office to office, that project will be yours, it will continue to develop, and it soon will turn into something that you become passionate about and it could be the beginning of your own office. And I think that advice is great. I think a lot of people in the architecture profession, or especially at Rice, would be excited to hear that advice. So you talked a little bit more about the business side just now. Are there any other lessons that you learned beyond just kind of realizing that there is a lot of value in the design that you have and you have to make sure that you protect that as part of your company and just as part of your good practices? Yeah, I, I think in terms of the, uh, the relationships that we have built with other people, other companies in Houston and, and actually beyond, I think that one thing that has changed both Dawn and I, as well as Sam, in this overall process is to trust our instincts about who the right people are for your project. And when you're first starting out as an architect, those instincts are still being formed. And some of them may not be instincts that you want to trust 100% yet. But as time goes by, those instincts are going to be well-formed and they're going to be based upon experience and 
they're going to be something that I think guides you very effectively. So where did you get the confidence to start your own company, given that designing these life safety fixtures typically falls outside the purview of the architectural profession? At the very beginning, we didn't have a lot of options. We were running out of work in our office, and we had great people that we didn't want to lose, and we needed them to finish some of the projects they were responsible for. And we've never hired anyone without paying here. We've never had unpaid interns, period, our whole career. So we have these people on board, and they're doing incredible work for us, but they have some hours that are unbillable. So we applied those expertise to those design projects. And so some of it was just practically, how do I get through the week and get something useful out of it since I'm paying these people in the office? And so I wouldn't say that was particularly bold or confident. That was us just trying to keep things rolling for the sake of some of the other projects that still need to be finished. But at a certain point, and when you get to my age, certain things you can just say, it's time to do this. And so you do it. I think that there's a lot more confidence in the kinds of experiences you've had, and you know how to make those calls, and you know what the consequences are. You can anticipate what the blowback's going to be, and you gird yourself for that, and that gives you confidence. I don't think that you necessarily have to be my age to have that. Maybe the, the, the takeaway is that you anticipate what the blowback's going to be, and you brace yourself for that, and you, you determine whether that you're okay with that, and you figure out what's the worst thing that could happen, right? And if that's something that you can sustain, then you do it and you don't look back. Thanks for being on the podcast today, Mark. Sure. Thank you for having me. For more information on Mark and ASC, visit architecturalsafety.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platform to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Ted a Ted.